just tuned into this episode of Pasty Performance Bite Size. So this clip comes from episode number 309 with Christian Thorborg, and we discussed the controversy, a constant controversy, around the implementation of the Nordic hamstring exercise. But just before we do dive into this clip, I want to say a big thank you to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. So if you were like me but and wanted to collect some really good subjective data from your athletes but just didn't have the budget to do so, make sure you check out AMS Lite from Rock Daisy because it is the first AMS on the market which is free, completely free. So head over to rockdaisy.com to check that out. Why do you think that it has become so polarised? Do you think, do you think, and I'll just put something to you, Christian, do you think people have an issue that the Nord board has come out of this as a commercial uh, entity? So I think not? if you, if you, if you, oh, maybe if you don't, if you, if you haven't followed the literature, I think some started following it when the Nord board came out and then some, of course, you would think that these two are very closely linked, but that was the, I think that was the awesome part as well is was that this was just, an idea by David and Anthony uh, related to, I think, our research, but there was, I mean, we had no communication. As I said, I've never heard about these guys before uh, I met them in London at this conference. So for me, that was very innovative and a very good way to try and sort of just bring the research further. I think, I think there's one thing I would like to mention, which is very usually very misunderstood when you look at our study, which was a big RCT on almost 1,000 uh, football players from Denmark, soccer players, and uh, which was randomized into two groups. And what we actually looked was that we had a control group who would do their usual football training management, whatever you do in a football club, uh, from the highest level to sort of that level I played, so just below. Uh, <laughs> And uh, and then the intervention group was the Nordic hamstring protocol, which had been shown from other groups to be very effective on increasing eccentric strength um, in the knee flexors. And it also there was a, a study before us that was not, it was sort of a quasi-randomized, it was not a real randomized study where they looked at data from two different countries where they had a really dramatic effect. So at this point we have, we just have something that looks really effective, but we don't know how it's working. So our study was sort of trying to, can we actually confirm this finding? And so our, ours was a confirmatory study trying to, to do it in a more rigorous RCT setting. So what a lot of people don't realize is that they would often criticize, but this is, a, is, this is just one exercise. How could it ever be effective? Because we do at least one, two, three, or four different things. What this study was actually showing was that if you play regular football in, in a setting, including your strength and conditioning, including all the football training you do, if you then on top of that, add the Nordic hamstring exercise protocol, and you compare it with not adding it, then you have something that is very, very simple. It takes very, very little time. It actually starts off the first week by two times five repetitions, that's all you do the first week. That is very, very effective. So when you say that it's just one exercise, you, you're completely forgetting the whole design of the study, which means that these players are full on playing and training football. And then you just 
add something a little extra, which is probably a lot extra in terms of the the um, exercise stimuli, stimuli, but in compared to time-wise and compared to other things that you would like to do with all these football players, it's really uh, nothing at all. Uh, and I think that, that that is one point that I think people keep forgetting when they say, oh, but how can one exercise work? Because they're true. If, if this was just one exercise and we told one club, uh, this intervention group, now you can't play football, you can only do this exercise. I mean, first of all, it wouldn't be feasible. You wouldn't be able to do it. But it probably wouldn't work as well. Like it's it's not, uh, I mean, <laughs> that's what's happening with the lockdown. Asking people not to play football is certainly doing nothing good for, for hamstring injuries, mm-hmm. of course, because you, you have you have no physiological stimuli in relation to sprinting, and that's detrimental to these injuries. So I think that, that for me, that's a very important point that is usually often forgotten, mm-hmm. I think. So we've got all this data, we've got all this research from, from you guys uh, and, and Dave and, and Anthony's groups. Why is there still people arguing against the use of Nordics when, if you like you say, we're all, whether you're a strength and conditioning coach or a sport scientist, they're all under the sport scientist banner. So people are scientists and the science says mm-hmm. that it works. Why are people still questioning its its, yeah. its implementation so i think what we have to take very seriously is of course that that there might be an implementation problem okay. uh, and uh, and definitely there, there are barriers towards implementing this it's i think there's not we haven't done enough research or enough uh, sort of surveying what why what the barriers are we've, we've done a little bit we've, and we were actually able to do this at, at the um, at the Champions League level um, where we were sort of asking uh, Champions League clubs whether they were actually doing the Nordic hamstring protocol and there you could you could definitely see that they were definitely not using it per protocol so they were not using the entire 10 weeks so you you could argue that uh, so I think there was about I think it was around 10 or 11 percent of the clubs that would say they were using the full protocol. Um, but there were also clubs not using the exercise at all. So I mean, I mean, there was there's, there's some. There would be some uh, opinions out there saying this is probably a bad exercise entirely. Um, and then there would be clubs, and we couldn't, with our survey, we couldn't say exactly what how they would then utilize it. But what what we hear and when we speak to to uh, different clubs, different levels, is that they are of course probably trying to modify it in some way that it fits their world better. Um, and this is probably, or this is not probably, this is where we need, to, I think, to do more research because if people say, I'm just, I'm just gonna change uh, the evidence or, or what actually shows to be effective according to the evidence and, and, and we're not testing whether that's actually working, then I think we still have a problem. We might change it to something that's not working anymore and this is also, I think, where some of the work done in Australia is, is, is very interesting because they've sort of gone a little bit into uh, dosage. Can we change the, the, the actual um, content and dosage of the program so we don't have to do a full 10-week program? So I think some, especially at the highest level, will say, oh, 10 weeks, that's not possible to fit in anywhere. Um, I'm not. I'm not completely convinced about the argument. I think 
I think one of the problems with that is that if you've never done it and then you have to start with 10 weeks somewhere, I think it's a problem. But I've seen clubs where they also at the highest level where they where they slowly over time are actually able to build up uh, this kind of work and put it into their normal strength and conditioning uh, work. Um, and then, of course, they have to peri periodize this also in relation to the season. And there's some evidence, also emerging evidence, that it, it looks like the more consistent you can actually be with this. So can you even do it uh, during more than one season? It looks like it just gets better and better. So I think I would really love to see more clubs trying to be more intentional about trying to implement it in some way. It may still not be the full program, but you, and I will come back to this, I think there is some argument for for having um, a large volume and why, and also why we were su successful with this volume when we started. Mm -hmm. We can discuss that further. Of course. Um, when, so, so one issue I think is, is is if you so one of the risk factors we've seen especially from the australian group is the fascicle length so if you have shorter fascicle length you're you're at, at increased risk of getting a hamstring injury um and that is what we call a surrogate measure so that means that's it's it, it's actually not an easy measure to get because it's it's very operator dependent and not a lot of people do it well is from what i've heard so that's one issue, but even it's a lot easier. It's an easier measure in the way that you can you can you can do your protocol and then you can get a, a very quick assessment of how it actually affects your your fascicles. Um, so the the challenge with that or the problem with that is that is that a risk factor or a surrogate measure does not correlate one hundred percent to to uh, injury prevention. Uh, so it it. You have to be very careful when you when you then change your practice based on a sort of measure or, or on a risk factor. And this is also one of the reasons why risk factors are so poor at predicting um, individual uh, sort of who will get injured, who will not get injured. So it's that they they are sort of part of the bigger picture. They can explain some of the variance in in in, in risks that we see, but they're not they're not going to predict what's going to happen. And in the same way, you can say that. Just because you change fascicle length doesn't mean you're actually getting the adaptation you need. We don't actually know whether that's enough to to, to get a preventive uh, effect. So what are the risk factors, Christian? While we're on it, so the so the, the more, most consistent risk factors would be uh, age is one, and we can come back to that because it's a, it's it's. It's very specific in, in hamstring injuries. You get you get old very quickly <laughs> with hamstring injuries. You you, you hit 10, 22, 23 in football or in soccer, and then and then you're actually on the brink of of, of increasing your risk because you're you're uh, you're in the old group. Um, wow. And then the other one, and then the other big one, of course, is previous history of hamstring injury. Um, and then I think. Eccentric strength is in there somewhere, and also in relation to uh, quadriceps strength. So there's there might be something about the ratio as well. But the the, the evidence there is so mixed that it's very very difficult to to sort of say that eccentric strength alone, or even like that that absolute parameter is 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 um, is a is a good predictor or not even a predictor risk factor. It, it comes out in some studies and not in other studies. So again, from that point of view, you could say, so I don't think it's necessarily the point that you are the strongest one eccentrically in your group, 
but I think doing eccentric strain strength training would would more or less always be a good idea for the whole group. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So if you want to listen to the full episode with Christian, head over to sportsmith.co or iTunes or Spotify or YouTube and it is episode number 300 and